They're wolves in sheep's clothing, pastors who are narcissists, who claim to be serving God, but are really serving themselves and leaving a path of devastation in their wake. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And today I'm going to be talking about an extremely serious problem in the church, the problem of narcissism. And joining me will be Chuck DeGroote, a professor, clinical therapist, and author of the book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. But before I talk to Chuck, I just want to say a brief word about the crisis we're in concerning the coronavirus pandemic. And I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. I know I haven't. And I'm glad that churches and Christian institutions are taking this seriously. Many are closing and encouraging people to just stay home. I think that's a wise word right now. But I think it's hard, isn't it, as Christians to practice something called social distancing, right? I mean, we want to love people and be near them. But one way to love our neighbor right now is to not infect our neighbor or be infected by our neighbor. So I think it's wise that we stay home and, hey, you can listen to podcasts maybe or get caught up on ones that you've missed. Um, But here's what I'm noticing. Families are being forced to spend time together during this crisis. We're doing church at home, right? As our churches are live streaming their services or we're doing meals at home as restaurants are closing. And I know our family in the past few days have worshiped and prayed more together than we probably had in the entire month prior to this whole crisis. So friends, I really think that we need to embrace this crisis as an opportunity to grow together as families. I mean, obviously Satan wants to push us apart and get us to really come down on each other. And you know how sometimes too close a quarters can be a problem. But I think what God wants us to do is grow together. And so I, I really encourage you, do family devotions, gather for meals, draw together closer as a family during this time. But it's not only an opportunity, I think, for our families to come together. I think our communities can come together as well. I got this idea from our pastor. His family put a note in the mailboxes of their neighbors, and the note just said something simple like, hey, we know this is a stressful time. Just wanted to let you know that our family has plenty of food. We also have a stash of toilet paper. If that's true for you, you can say that. Uh, If you need anything, please don't hesitate to ask. And also know that we're praying for you. And hey, if there's a way that we can pray for you, especially please let us know. So that's an idea, I just think, of something we can do to reach out to our neighbors and love them during this crisis. Also, you may have heard uh, local blood banks are saying that there's a critical shortage of blood right now. Many blood drives have been canceled, so if you're not in a high-risk group and you're healthy, you may just want to consider giving blood. And lastly, let's remember that God is sovereign, right? This pandemic is not a surprise to him. And his word says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So God's got this. And no matter what happens, we can trust that he will work his purposes in all things. Also, I do want to ask that you pray for one of our sponsors of this podcast, Judson University. Like many colleges around the country, they've had to send students home and move classes online. Spring sports have been canceled, and this is a huge transition for them. So please remember Judson students, faculty, and staff in prayer, and also your local schools and uh, maybe colleges where your sons and daughters are going to school as well. Uh, They need our prayers. Also, uh, another one of our sponsors, the Illinois Family Institute, has been forced to reschedule its education forum that was set uh, for April 25th. 
So stay tuned for more information on that in upcoming podcasts. And please pray for our friends at the IFI as well. I'm sure this is a trying time for them. But again, today we're going to be discussing narcissism, a huge issue in our church, one that I honestly wasn't even aware of probably two years ago, but has come crashing to our awareness as more and more of these church scandals uh, have broken in the news. And uh, I've been a part of breaking some of those. And often at the center is a narcissist pastor. So I am so glad to have a professor, author, clinical therapist, Chuck DeGroat with me. So Chuck, Welcome, and thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, thank you for doing it, too. Well, and how are you guys facing this crisis? I know you're at a seminary, so probably you've moved classes online and probably a trying time for you, right? Yeah, it's a trying time for all of us, right? I mean, I'm I'm grateful that we're distance learning already, and so we can transition our classes online, but... I was also a pastor for 15 years, and uh, I'm I'm trying to be available to pastors because I know a lot of my friends out there are just really anxious right now, right? We're all anxious, and so uh, just trying to be present to them and to my students and to my family. And I love what you said at the, the opening about connecting as families. We're experiencing that right now with my 18- and 17-year-old daughters, and it's so good. Hmm. Yeah, it is good. I know we did church at home for the first time in, boy, I don't know how long. Uh, on Sunday, yeah. our, our pastor live-streamed a, a sermon, so we were able to, to right. listen to that. We had a neighbors of ours right. that we do a home group with, and they came over. We, we washed our hands, and we practiced, you know, not coming yeah, to close yeah. and all that. But it was yeah. such a special worship time that we had together. I pulled out my guitar for the first time in a while. and um, Nice. And we just, we worshiped the Lord together. We prayed for each other. There was an amount of sharing that was just probably a little deeper, a little more vulnerable than usual. And and afterwards, my 17-year-old daughter said to me, wow, that was just really neat, kind of like what the early church probably yeah. did. And so yeah. I, yeah. It's, I think it is an opportunity for us. It's always an opportunity, any crisis, to be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting time interesting time yeah. to, to be alive and, and to be the church. So, Right. Well, let's talk about narcissism. And I think I had yeah. mentioned before we went on uh, this podcast when we were just discussing, our number one, my number one podcast or radio show has been on this topic of narcissism. And mm-hmm. I think there's just a hunger mm-hmm. to know more about it uh, because it has become an, a big issue in the church. And many have fallen prey or victim to, to narcissist pastors. But for the person listening who is kind of new to this whole topic, what is narcissism, at least when it becomes sort of a pathological problem? Yeah. Well, so, I, and I think you just said something important, when it becomes a pathological problem, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that narcissism exists on a spectrum. Uh, Theodore Milan did some research on narcissism years ago, and it's an, I've been using an assessment that he put together uh, a while ago for the last 10 or 10 or 12 years with pastors, and it places uh, each of us who take this assessment on a spectrum uh, between narcissistic style, type, and disorder. And when we get into disordered relating, um, we, we, well, to use the, the DSM-5's definition of it, we talk about um, a kind of grandiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to be on stage. It's all about them, um, a profound sense of arrogant self-centeredness. We talk about a, a lack of empathy. Pastors who just 
can't be present to the pain of another. They may, what I'm finding, and I know maybe you're finding this too, I'm finding that pastors are becoming more psychologically savvy. And so I'm adding to this the caveat that pastors can be what I call vulnerable, F-A-U-X, not vulnerable, <laughs> but vulnerable. Uh-huh. Um, they can sort of make you think that they get what's going on in you, but, but that second piece is really important, that it's not a real sense of empathy. And then the DSM-5 talks about impairments of identity and in, uh, or uh, impairments in identity and intimacy, and that just means that there's volatility in their relationships and volatility at work. And this is what we see, this grandiosity, this lack of empathy, and this volatility in all areas of their lives. Hmm. Well, and we are seeing it in the church more and more, and I know that's kind of where you encountered it from yeah. a sort of a personal uh, standpoint. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you experienced narcissism in the church and how it impacted you. Yeah, well, probably for a lot of people, I I didn't have words for it uh, early on. And uh, even going back to seminary in the mid-1990s, I, I experienced this sort of culture where narcissists could thrive, but I I didn't know, and I thought it was me. I thought I was the problem. And oftentimes when we talk about narcissism and narcissistic abuse, we talk about gaslighting Mm -hmm. in that sense that we're going crazy, that there's something wrong with me. But yeah, I encountered, encountered this early on in seminary and in pastoral ministry, and uh, I don't think I fully realized uh, the the trauma it caused in my own life and my own body, even doing therapy over those years, um, that experience of feeling bullied uh, or feeling manipulated uh, or, or just feeling crazy uh, that I encountered. And I, I don't talk about specific details of my story. I try to keep... Uh, uh, I, I, tr- I try to keep that story uh, relatively private uh, because it was a long, long time ago. Um, but I know that I woke up the night before last at 3 a.m. with some anxiety, and I traced it back uh, 17 or 18 years mm-hmm. ago to some pain I experienced in the church. And lots of folks who are survivors of narcissistic abuse will talk about a kind of ongoing trauma that they experience in their bodies over the course of days and weeks and years. Um, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn kinds of dynamics of trauma. And it can be really painful and debilitating for folks. Well, and you mentioned this term gaslighting. That is yeah. a term that, again, two years ago, I would have been like, what's gaslighting? I've never heard of that before. I mean, yeah, this yeah. has become a part of our vernacular, at least if you're in a survivor community at all or or have access to uh, survivor communities. Um, this is just so common, this gaslighting. And you said, too, I thought I was crazy. Like, I hear that so much. And and when I've published things uh, about, like, most recently about uh, James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel, people will write me and say, thank you for publishing this. I thought I was crazy. This is so affirming and healing for me to hear. I'm not crazy. But talk about gaslighting and this this trauma. How What is gaslighting? And and how does that kind of make you feel crazy? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's a way that uh, narcissists manipulate um, by communicating in, in some way, verbally or non-verbally, that you are the problem. Uh, I was talking to someone just the other day who was experiencing this, uh, even in the context of this coronavirus pandemic that we're, we're in right now, where she didn't feel like she was doing enough for this lead pastor who was expecting her to get supplies 
and get video technology ready for an online worship service, and on and on and on it went. And um, she thought she was the problem because he was communicating to her that it wasn't fast enough and efficient enough. And, and as I talked to her, I said, I said these words again, you're not crazy. You're doing as much as you can. And she said, I am. And I said, you are. You absolutely are. And I think that's just that dynamic. It's a form, it's a subtle form of emotional abuse. And when we talk about emotional abuse, we talk about abuse without a physical scar. You know, it's a wound to the soul. The problem is you. And I think if I have one goal for this book more than any other, I hope people pick it up and understand better what they're dealing with so that they can recognize that maybe they're just not crazy. Hmm. And that's so important. I mean, sometimes that's just step one because you and people in the church are usually somewhat introspective and willing to look at where they might be at fault. Right. I mean, that's how we come to Christ. We admit our fault. And so when somebody's telling us that we're doing something wrong or that it's our problem, yeah. Even if we're like, wait a second, I've done an awful lot. Why? Why is it always my problem? It, it's still we're we're susceptible, I think, to those messages, yeah. and so it it is yeah. so important to be able to to put our finger on this and and to begin to yeah. one name it, and then two begin to to work at our our own healing. Um, I want to dive into that a little bit. So you're at a church and you're seeing some things with your pastor, say. And uh, and you see some grandiosity there, perhaps. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, I mean, the the church is growing. Good things are happening. Um, Yeah. And so how do you know when when this is really something that needs to be addressed? And if you're in it, how on earth do you address it? Yeah, that's a great question. The first piece, I think, has to do with your own care. I think sometimes we move too quickly to addressing something that we're not completely clear about. So I, uh, I always tell people to get, uh, get some time with a trauma-informed therapist, a therapist who understands narcissism and abuse. And not all do. Not all therapists are helpful. Uh, or a spiritual director or a mentor, at least, who gets what's going on. And do the work first of, of uh, identifying how you're experiencing it. Uh, that's really critical. Before you can ever sort of lean into uh, helping uh, a narcissistic system, you've got to make sure that you're clear on what's going on inside of you, and you've got to make sure that you're clear that that's your call. It might just be that you need to step away from that system or to protect yourself or to be safe, and that's fine. I, I have to tell people all the time, people who think that it's their responsibility to fix a system, no, it's okay to step away if that's what you need. Um, but what, what you're wanting to pay attention to are some of the classic signs of narcissism that we see from pastors that, that sense that uh, they make all the decisions, uh, their impatience with others, uh, the feelings of entitlement, uh, uh, a sense that there's, uh, well, in staff at least, of being threatened or intimidated by the lead pastor. Um, they need to be the best and brightest in the room. I, I, I spell out all the characteristics of pastors who are narcissistic. And when you experience that, it's a matter of taking that really seriously. First and foremost, as I said, how, what's the impact on you? Hmm. Um, and then doing the work of healing so that you can begin to lean in and perhaps talk to someone who has some power, an elder uh, leader in the church, uh, in a way that you can begin to express 
um, the pain that you're experiencing and talk about what might be done next. Okay, so you're talking about talking about somebody talking to somebody in power, an elder or someone like this, and yet yeah, at the same right. time I'm hearing you say this word church system, and that's something that you talk about it's in your book about this is just not. Yeah. It's just not a man that's at the, the top. There's often an entire yeah. system that sort of forms right. around him so that often yeah. those elders who are supposed to be protecting the flock and protecting the mission yeah. are protecting the pastor, yeah. and they're not yeah. doing what they need to be doing. So talk a little bit about these systems yeah. and how yeah. they work um, to protect the pastor. That's right. So oftentimes, as you say, they are loyal soldiers, and... Uh, it, uh, those who report what they are experiencing find that it's a dead end, that they protect the narcissistic leader. And so one of the things that I, I talk about and I'm really convinced by is that narcissism doesn't exist in isolation. It, mm-hmm. it takes a village, you know, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. takes, it takes a system. And there are always people who enable narcissism within the system. And there are often deeply embedded um, beliefs or mental models, I like to say, that that enable narcissism in a system. Uh, and so it's a, it's a setup uh, for people to sort of follow the charismatic, grandiose leader. Uh, and they participate in it, and they're complicit in it. Every once in a while, I mean, I'm, I'm working with a church right now where there are a couple of elders who get it, and they're working hard to protect the flock. But every once in a while, you do see signs of, of life out there, uh, like the one I just mentioned, but oftentimes it's unsafe, even as you mentioned, to talk to another elder or leader. They'll sweep it under the rug, or they'll make you feel crazy. They'll say, surely it can't be him. He's a great leader. God's used him. God has blessed our church. Hmm. And there are some systems, I mean, that are more conducive, aren't there, to narcissism yeah. than others. And and we're hearing this a lot with, with megachurches and celebrity yeah. pastors, because obviously— yeah. It, to be up on a big stage and a big platform uh, can be a big deal. But at the same time, we also yeah. have some who would rather be a big fish in a small pond, and uh, you see narcissism there. There's no place where they're that's probably immune from immune, narcissist right. leaders. But right. talk yeah. about where the systems that are most conducive to this and how, you know, how in these, if you're in a church like this, how can you safeguard against it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good question, and um, I think you're right about large or megachurches um, perhaps being more um, conducive to narcissistic systems in, in the sense that they are predicated on growth and success and efficiency and image management and things like that, right? Um, it, it, at times they're sort of run like businesses. And I want to qualify that. I want to say not all large churches are implicated in that, mm-hmm. but many are. Um, they're, they're, sort of, uh, uh, they're sort of like uh, petri dishes of consumerism, right? They're just modeling what a, sort of a corporate strategy might model out there. And so, yeah, this is where we see it. We see it implicated in structures within systems, structures that are um, uh, very hierarchical or structures that give the lead pastor way too much power where there's not accountability or where there are leaders within systems that are yes-men or yes-women. Hmm. Even in church plants often, uh, because in church plants you usually have a charismatic lead pastor and uh, really a leadership team that that lead pastor recruited. And so 
the people that this person recruits are generally people who are on board, who agree, and, you know, with narcissism, who probably adore that lead pastor. Um, but you're also right to, to mention smaller churches, and we see a kind of more vulnerable form of narcissism that's not as grandiose, but it's more like, you know, we're the pure church. We're the church mm-hmm. of 50 people, but, you know, we are, there's no other church in town that preaches the gospel uh, we're the only church that's held the truth for, for this long, right? We're special, we're chosen. And that's a subtle, vulnerable form of narcissism that we've got to be on the lookout for. Hmm. I was really interested when I was reading your book when you said that a colleague of yours says that ministry is a magnet for a narcissistic personality. Yes. Who yeah. else would want to speak on behalf of God every single week? And then you said that in your own yeah. work, which includes 15 years of psychological testing among yeah. pastors, the vast majority of ministerial candidates on the spectrum of cluster B DSMV personality disorders yeah. feature narcissistic traits most prominently, that these rates yeah. are even higher among church planners. So what you're saying is, I'm seeing a lot of this in pastors and in our church planters, I mean, that's scary to hear. Yeah. I mean, I I had to reckon with this myself as someone who uh, started out in ministry over 20 years ago now. There's something about it, you know, Uh, the the master of divinity. And now I tell my students about this, right? (laughs) The Um, master of divinity, yeah. Master of divinity, right? Right. (laughs) And what a strange thing. We, We get up on stage when most people are afraid of public speaking, right? We get up on stage and we, we speak, this is the word of the Lord, you know? And there's something about that, that we're, as you said, I've been doing this testing for a long time, and uh, I think we were talking about this before the show. Sadly, there, there's far too little research on narcissism in the Church, but my, my own work over, over the last 10 or 15 years of doing these assessments um, really shows pretty clearly that pastors, the large majority of pastors, test in this cluster B. Now, cluster B is narcissism, but it, it, it's also histrionic personality and borderline personality and antisocial personality, and all of those are sort of like shades of narcissism, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, we can see whether it's grandiosity or emotionality or drama or need to be the center of attention or whatever form it shows up in, this is why I really try to nuance narcissism in this book. I want people to see it not just as the caricature of the big, bold, charismatic leader, but I want us to see it in its more subtle forms as well. Hmm. And um, there, there are people who don't need a church of 1,000 or 10,000. They're perfectly happy with their church of 50, feeling like we're special, we get it, we're pure, uh, we're elect, and no one else is. And that's narcissism, too. Yeah, I hear that a lot uh, when I interview sources at churches that mm-hmm. have had issues like this, that there's like this this sense of purity. You know, it can be doctrinal purity. It can be, you know, just in the way that they practice. But yeah, we are the the one and only church, and that is, I think, a telltale yeah. sign. And, and you know that's pretty dangerous. I mean, to think that you have the corner of <laughs> corner on Christianity. I have been in so many different types of churches and denominations in my you know forty plus years of being a believer, and uh, nobody has a monopoly on it. In fact, I find that there's just a beauty in every expression yeah. throughout yeah. the church of who yeah. Jesus Christ is and how He wants mm. us to express 
himself to this world. And so, I, I yeah, I, I find that really problematic when I hear that. Yeah. And there's something yeah. you said that I'd like to dive into a little bit, but you're talking about yeah, like yeah. these, um, you didn't, I don't think you used the word faces of narcissism, but you do in your book, you talk about these nine faces yeah. of narcissism. You actually yeah, tie yeah. it to the whole Enneagram, uh, right, different right. personalities. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So I don't know if we can get yeah. through all nine, but maybe give us, a, <laughs> give, a, give us a taste of a few of them. Yeah, well, you know, the Enneagram is really hot nowadays. People are reading all kinds of books on it, and I've found it over the years. I was first introduced to it over 20 years ago, so I found it a helpful tool. It's only a tool. It's not the Bible, you know, but um, I do think that when most people uh, talk about narcissism, and I ask them, if they know something about this Enneagram, if I ask them, what's a a classic uh, type of the narcissist? They'll talk about the three, who's the achiever the person who likes to be on stage, the person who likes to win and be successful. Or they'll talk about the Enneagram 8, who tends to be more powerful and in charge, kind of command and control leader. But I want to say, what about the 5, the Enneagram 5, who tends to be more quiet and distant, but he's, he's intellectual. He knows better than you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've done plenty of marriage counseling over the years where I've, I've done counseling with a woman who's pouring out her heart and her husband's sitting there taking notes on a yellow pad, uh, writing it all down. You know, he's up in his head, and he's disconnected, not empathetic. Um, or what about the Enneagram 6, who's the hy- I call the hypervigilant narcissist, who always has to be in control, who's sort of uh, always making sure that everyone knows the rules, and that you're either in or out uh, if you're uh, living according to her rules. You know, and so what I want to say is that uh, in, the, in the narcissism conversation, let's not get caught up on simply the definition of narcissism as grandiose, but there's this more subtle form of vulnerable narcissism that tends to be more passive-aggressive, tends to be more subtle, tends to be more self-pitying, uh, tends, to, uh, tends to sort of... Uh, it's almost like snake-like. It's, uh, it's, it's really sinister in its impact in that it draws people in and, and sort of uses them and spits them out. And uh, that can be a really subtle form of narcissism that might not look like that grandiose charismatic leader. Hmm. And oddly enough, this person who, you know, can take different expressions, but normally they come across as sometimes feeling superior or very yeah. confident. Um, yes. All of these things that you're saying uh, in your book betrays a profound shame, and often secret yeah. addictions, and so they're yeah. covering for yeah. something, right? Yeah. I think that's the thing that, in my work over the years with narcissists, I, I've come to see, like, the behind-the-scenes story, right? And behind the scenes, when you're dealing with someone who's narcissistic, there is inevitably some sort of experience of uh, shame or insecurity, if you can get there. And with narcissistic personality disorder, you rarely, if ever, get there. Mm. But with people on the narcissistic spectrum, when you, when you get down to it, it's the bully who was bullied when he was young. Mm. And so, you know, uh, th- there is always a story of shame. And what I like to talk about is, it's like at a very early age, they develop this self-protective wall within. It's not like they woke up at seven years old saying, I'm going to develop a wall, but sort of subconsciously this wall is put up. And they begin living, uh, they, they're really hidden from, from everyone else because they're scared to be vulnerable, right? And so they, 
they live out of this self-protective strategy. They live from the sort of outward-facing side of the wall, and that's all you see. Um, sadly, what we don't see and what they don't allow us to see is the vulnerable, scared little boy or little girl within. And every now and then when I'm doing this work, I'll, uh, I'll be working with someone who lets me, I often say, lets me behind the stage, behind the curtain. Mm. And I will get to the story of, of, of this little boy, this little girl in a lot of pain. And, and they'll say something like, Chuck, I'm just so scared. If I, if I show who I really am, I'll be beat up. I'll be rejected. I'll, mm. um, I won't be successful. I won't be able to lead anymore. I can't do that. I've got to show up as my stage self, you know, and that's, if they ever allow you to get there, and this is really, really rare, but if they ever allow you to get there, there's a possibility that we can start doing some work. And uh, we, we occasionally see people willing to do that and uh, who over a long period of time begin to grow, but it takes a long time. Hmm. And I want to just mention that I am giving away five copies of Chuck's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. If you'd like to enter to receive one of these books, uh, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. That's julieroy.com slash giveaway. And also this month, uh, I'm giving away When Narcissism Comes to Church. If you donate to this ministry, any donation of $25 or more to the Roy's Report, uh, we'll get a copy of Chuck's book. And uh, this is how we fund uh, all of the journalistic work that I do and uh, those that I'm able to bring alongside me uh, sometimes as freelancers to do this. It's all through donations. So uh, if you'd like to support this work, again, just go to julieroys.com uh, and either slash giveaway if you want to enter the giveaway or uh, there's a donate button if you want to donate to this work. Um, Chuck, I loved what you said about getting beneath the surface, which normally yeah. with a narcissist, they never let you do. But right. you, you know, I've talked to an awful lot of people who say they're incurable. There's yeah, nothing you right. can do with a narcissist. And yes. and honestly, as a Christian, I I hear that and, and I'm just like, well, how can I really bring that together with what I believe in Christ? That yeah, you know, right. if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I have trouble saying that anyone is beyond mm -hmm. the redemptive work of Christ. And, and you say, right. no, I've seen some success. So tell us about that. Yeah, this will probably be the more controversial piece of this. Uh, but, but as a Christian, my, my conviction is that each and every one of us are image bearers. And mm -hmm. so when I sit with someone, even if that person doesn't have faith in Christ, I, I've got to believe that uh, this is a person made in the image of God. And there's something about that, that we know the design. They're made for relationship. They're made for connection. They're made to know and be known. Uh, they've got that deep hunger within, but it's covered by a thousand layers of pain and of self-protective strategies. Now, the reality is, is that with narcissistic personality disorder, uh, we, uh, we don't see much change. And oftentimes what I say is that what I attempt to do is I simply attempt to sort of mitigate damage. You know, I'm, mm. I'd like for them to step away from the church, step out of ministry. Um, the problem there is that there's not a capacity for self-reflection often. Um, I, I don't like this language of they're just, they're just wicked and they'll never, ever change. So, some, of them, uh, some of them step away from ministry. Uh, I know a guy who was narcissistic personality disorder that stepped away uh, it took a lot of work from a bunch of us, but he mm -hmm. stepped away and he went into real estate. 
Hmm. And and I was like, that, okay. <laughs> um, he didn't become a more kind and empathetic person in general, right? But hmm. but I would say for people on this the narcissistic spectrum, kind of lower down, narcissistic style or type, like we talked about earlier, if there's a capacity for self-reflection, and if they can see how they impact people, in other words, if they can say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how I was hurting you. I didn't realize, and, and for that to be really honest, that's where we can begin to see some change. But, but this isn't quick change, and mm. these turnaround stories that we hear about often, and I know you've been, you've been a sort of a leader in, in exposing some of this stuff, but these stories of quick turnarounds that we hear about, uh, I'm always very, very suspicious of, because if you're, if you're narcissistic, even on the spectrum, you've got to step away for a significant period of time be out of any sphere of influence, any form of leadership, and do some really, really hard work. And then, as in the case of someone I worked with about 15 years ago, it took about 10 years, and then he dipped his toe back in ministry again as an assistant pastor. But mm. it took a long time and a lot of care and a high degree of accountability. And that's just, you know, there aren't very, very many narcissistic pastors willing to go through those trials to get there. Hmm. Well, and just recently, <laughs> uh, James McDonald returned to this. Yeah, returned to the pulpit and uh, announced yeah. that he's coming back, and it was just almost surreal listening to him talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because he said that the Lord allowed us to be separated from the church that we loved for a lifetime. It's a time of intense suffering for us. I mean, I'm listening to him, and it sounds like he's been victimized by his church, not that he has taken advantage and victimized the people in his church, which was in reality what happened. But this is what I hear from so many uh, people that talk about these narcissists, that they're they can hardly ever see how they hurt others, that they're the victim, not the true victim. Yes. Um, yeah. They're unable to see it. And, and they're, they're not only unable to admit their sin and repent of it, often they literally can't see it, right? Yeah, yeah. They can't see it, and they live in this what I call hero-victim-martyr complex, you know, where they're, they love to play the hero. Mm-hmm. But they can, they can flip the script and, and very quickly become the victim and, and even martyr, you know, of, of these people who are not gracious enough to realize the gift that God, that, that He is and God and the fruit of the ministry and all of these different kinds of things. And, you know, we were talking about gaslighting, but there are people, I'm sure, who heard James McDonald. You know the story, well, much better than I do, but mm-hmm. there are likely people who heard him and said, oh, I must have been... Uh, uh, I wasn't gracious enough to him. God really is using him. I'm sure there are, there are masses of people who said, you know, I was just really too hard on him. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a hard trial, and I've got to be more gracious. It was me, not him. Mm. And this is the really, I, I'm sure it was maddening for you to hear that, right? Like, this is a maddening <laughs> part of this. Well, you you still hear it. I mean, it's on social media. It's like, oh, we just need to yeah. forgive. and And you're like, forgiveness involves repentance and there is zero repentance and you know i'm i'm seeing the same thing this i mean unfortunately it's not you that unique there's other pastors i I just heard a podcast done by uh, mark driscoll recently and wow it was shocking to me they're talking about what happened at mars hill and i'm like this is a complete rewriting of history 
Um, yeah. He doesn't mention at all the uh, bullying and abusive behavior that he had in, the plagiarism yeah. scandal, yeah. the deception. I mean, none yeah. of that. Yeah. In fact, when they yeah. asked him, you know, about some things that had happened again, it sounded like he's a victim. I mean, I'm listening to him talk about how his yeah. children are in the yard and, 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 you know, people come by and throw rocks at them and a helicopter goes above their house and... And the, the interviewer is asking, well, what happened? Uh, what was the cause of this? And he said, and he actually said it was mostly theological was my stance on LGBT. And I'm like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, and, and, it, and, and to him, he said it's, he's, he was just preaching biblical and it's about his biblical stances. That yeah, he took. And I'm right. just, I was stunned because if you know the history of Mars Hill, you know that he was actually removed by his elders because of just severe problems with, you know, the way he treated people. And he was about to be, and this is where I think this is so instructive, he was about to be uh, given a plan by his elders, a restoration plan, and that's when he bolted. And so that's what I'm seeing that happens when you're saying they need to step away for 10 years or whatever. That's right. There yeah. needs to be uh, and submission, doesn't there, to yeah, to right. the place where you hurt people, not just go somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, and and when we're talking about narcissistic pastors, we're we're often talking about abuse and abuse of power, and, and that's really important. Um, oftentimes, these pastors, when they're painting themselves as a martyr, I, I know one prominent pastor who had affairs said, well, you know, kind of what's the big deal? God forgives me, I had an affair. I've forgiven, let's move on. But, but the reality is it's an abuse of power. Those of us in leadership, those of us particularly in pastoral leadership, um, are, called to, uh, are, are called to a kind of integrity and accountability that others aren't called to. We, we're all called to integrity and accountability, obviously, but as a leader of a flock, as a leader of a large flock, it, there's obviously... Um, a, a higher call, right? And so um, I, I think the sad thing about this, guys like Mark or James or others, is exactly what you said earlier. Like, forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm-hmm. When we wound another or when we wound a flock, there's reparative work that needs to be done over time, just as if you know, a, a couple, a, a married couple, goes through a really hard season where there was some kind of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often a, a kind of work that needs to be done to gain back trust. And, and to watch some of these folks go from one place to another and sort of recreate their ministry, and then to point the finger and say, I got a bad rap, you know, I'm the victim here, is, uh, that, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I want us to become really crystal clear about what we're dealing with so that people can say, oh, I'm not crazy. This is manipulative. This is gaslighting. Mm. I'm clear about it now. And we need to do something about it. Hmm. Well, lastly, I I would like to talk about how a church heals, because what we're yeah. seeing, and actually I talked to somebody just this week who said, you know, we're seeing what some people have predicted, that with these mega church, churches, they only last as long as their pastor, and then they're, they're done. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, this huge building, this huge system, all built up around really a cult of personality, and then the guy turns out to be a narcissist and or, yes. you know, damages his church, he ends up imploding, and now the church is left yes. with this huge yes. hole and a system that is created around the celebrity pastor. That's right. And what, what do they do at this point? I know there's an awful lot of people who say, well, they should just fold and, you know, start independent churches out of it, and yes. that is what yes. happened at, at Mars Hill uh, in large part. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But 
is there a model or is there a way that churches can heal after having a narcissist pastor leave? Yeah, yeah. I, that's such a good question, and I, I think it, it's, it depends. <laughs> it depends on how honest they're willing to be about um, their own participation and complicity in it. Uh, I was working with a, a very large church um, a while ago, and I, 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 I try to make sure when I do this work that I, I cloud up the details. Um, I get too many emails from people uh, saying, you were talking about me, and so I always mm. mix details with my stories, okay? <laughs> um, so that people uh, don't have to send me those emails. But uh, I was working with a large church where the lead pastor was asked to resign after some, some work of, of uh, naming the narcissism, and, and, the ch- and the leadership of the church at that point kind of said, well, that's the problem. Now the problem is gone, and we'll be okay. Mm. Um, and so they kind of put a Band-Aid on it, and they, they had a couple of congregational meetings, and they appointed another leader. And I said, you guys, there's so much more work to do, and if you're willing, let's, let's engage that work. Uh, but unfortunately, they weren't willing. Um, the, the hard part is now they've got to get honest about uh, how they participated in the problem. Right. And that honesty is, is really, really difficult when you're still licking your own wounds, when you've been hurt, you know? Uh, I talk about this as below-the-waterline work. I mean, we put Band-Aids on big problems above the waterline, but when we go below the waterline, we have to start naming things like uh, deeper patterns that existed over time. We need to start talking about how our structures and our systems and our, even our church polity and procedures play a role in this kind of thing, enabling narcissists. We've got to talk about uh, mental models, in other words, implicit beliefs about um, who ought to be up there. And you know, it, it, an example of this is uh, at, uh, at Willow Creek right now, mm-hmm. um, and I think I can say this, uh, they, they came out with a job description that looks a lot like their previous lead pastor's job description. Exactly. Which tells me that they're not doing the hard work of asking, what about our structures? What about our systems? What about our implicit beliefs about who a lead pastor is? What, what of those need to change? And that's really the hard work that takes a lot of time that, speaking as a consultant, many, many churches don't want to do that work because it's just too costly. Mm. And it's so hard. You've been operating on one paradigm, and you bought into that paradigm, and that's why you're there. And then when you find out it's broken, to go back, which really I think is what needs to happen, is to go back to the drawing board and saying we need to redo God, what are you calling us That's to right. do and to be? That's right. And and how did we participate in this? How were we complicit with it? And really have a season of repentance and of of healing and of it bringing in outside people. That's the other thing. It's yeah. like bringing in some people with some objectivity because I don't think if you're in the midst of it, you can see it, can you? No, you can't. And and that's the hard thing is, is it's sort of like you're in that... Uh, that uh, that pot of boiling water, and at some point you realize this is scalding me. You know, yeah, right. I, this is cold. This is hot. Um, and so, yeah, you often can't see it until it starts to burn you. And uh, this is where it does take wise outside investigators who are trained in understanding these kinds of organizational dynamics uh, to do the work of truth telling mm. and uh, the, the work that you do often, Julie. Of 
of naming realities that people simply don't want to name. Uh, and that's hard. It's painful. Yeah. Um, but, but we've got to do that work. Yeah. I remember when I was first um, embarking on some of this work, uh, I actually thought the institution I was blowing the whistle on would, um, would embrace it and the leaders would embrace it and, and they'd want me to continue investigating what's going on and really get to the bottom of it. I naively thought that's what yeah. we would do because that's what needed to be done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, unfortunately it was more about image protection and, um, yes. and soon yes. I was booted out of that system because I was destroying oh. the image, you know? So, um, yeah. yeah. so I became the Sorry. problem, but man, it, it, yeah. it just is something where we need a great deal of humility, I think in our churches and in our mm-hmm. systems. And we need to be willing to fail too. That's the other thing. I, I see this yeah. fear of failure where we're so afraid of losing, what we have that we don't even ask, does God even want it to continue? And can we just put this on the altar and, and bring it to the Lord and say, you know, either heal us and make us healthy or we don't want to go forward. Either I go yeah, forward with you right. or I don't go forward. And it, yeah. it, just, uh, yeah. it just has become a, a real problem, not just in institutions, but I think throughout evangelicalism. So Thank yeah. you, Chuck. I thank you for this yeah. book. Thank you for the work yeah. that you're doing. Yeah. And uh, we just pray that God continues to bless it and, uh, yeah. and increase your ability to, yeah. to help others. So thanks. Well, we're all in this together, right? So I'm grateful for your work. And it encourages me that there are a number of us who are, who are working at this from different angles. And so keep it up, Julie. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Hope you have a great day, and God bless.